Welcome to the Depolarized Podcast. I'm Dan Cope. And I'm Ellen Morrow. And this is the show, of course, where we look for common ground at the intersection of politics, faith, and psychology. And today we are talking with philosopher Walter Sinnott Armstrong. We talk about polarization, civility, the quality of our arguments, and more. And one brief note, we did record this interview. I recorded it with him before John McCain passed. So at one point we talk about John McCain and we don't seem to know that he died, but that's because it was before he died. Ellen, what do you got to say? Anything? Are you just ready? Buckled up? Buckled in. Ready to go. What's the difference between buckled up and buckled in? Uh, Is there a meaningful one? Maybe that should be another Patreon episode. <laughs> okay. Well, no we'll one just, cares. No, yeah. we'll just move on. Okay, guys. So here's my conversation with Walter. Thank you for being here, Walter. You said I could call you Walter because calling you Dr. Sinnott Armstrong would get a little bit tiring after a while. So thank you. Let's start by talking about polarization itself, which is something that any listener of this show is going to almost definitely be aware of and concerned about, but not actually something we have really looked at for a couple years. And you've written on this. So in your view, what exactly is polarization and what is not polarization? So polarization is many different things to many different people. And I don't think really there's a an agreed upon definition that everybody uses. What I use as the basis for my work is Nate Persley's account in a book that he edited. And in the introduction, he says, well, here are five different elements. And I had a few of my own. And basically, polarization can mean any of these things or any group of these things. And one of them is simply the distance between groups. So if you take, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans, and you take the mean or average view in each party, how far apart are they? But another is how unified is each group? Because it used to be that there were conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans, but less so. Each group has become more homogenous. Uh, so homogeneity is a second aspect of polarization. And then there's isolation. Do they talk to each other or not? Do they live next to each other or not? There's antagonism. Do they hate each other? Do they think the other people are ignorant and stupid? Do they dehumanize the other side and call them stupid, childish? There's incivility. How do they talk to each other in different contexts? There's opacity. I can't understand why anybody would vote for that person. I just don't understand the people on the other side. Well, maybe that's because you're not talking to them. But that opacity is another. Rigidity. I'm not going to compromise with those people. I have my values, and it's just ridiculous to bend at all. And that leads to gridlock, the inability to work together in Congress. That leads to gridlock. They don't pass laws and so on. So distance, homogeneity, isolation, antagonism, incivility, opacity, rigidity, gridlock, all of those are polarization. So instead of asking what polarization is, I think we ought to be asking which forms of polarization bother us or should bother us. I got nothing against disagreeing. I hope we disagree about a lot of stuff during this discussion. I got no problem with people forming groups where they all share certain ideas. And people, it's fine. If you want to live with people who share your views, that's fine too. But it's antagonism. It's incivility. It's the 
inability to understand each other that I think is the part of polarization that bothers me most. So that's what I want to focus on. It's often called by people like Chantal Iyengar at Stanford calls it affective polarization. But whatever you call it, that's what bothers me. It's the mutual antagonism between the parties and between members of those parties. So it might be helpful to understand, let's say, there's that book, The Big Sort, which seeks to sort of explain some of this polarization. Conservative people end up in rural areas and liberals end up in urban areas. You don't have a moral problem with that. That's helpful as a way of going, oh, that explains some of the data. But what you want to actually fight against are these more affective parts, the antagonism, the, the, the inability to understand the other. Sure. You live in a rural area. I'll live in an urban area or vice versa. But when we meet on the bus, I hope we don't like hate each other and throw stones at each other. Right. Now, is polarization actually getting worse? Can these items be quantified? So absolutely. Uh, The best data, I think, is from the Pew Research Center. And they have tracked this for decades and I found there have been big changes between, say, 1994 and 2014. Their last comprehensive analysis of polarization came out in 2014. But they have some follow-ups more recently in the age of Trump. For example, claims like immigrants today are a burden on our country because they take our jobs, housing, and health care. Well, in 1994, there was only two percentage points difference between the Democrats and the Republicans on that issue. Whereas in 2017, this is actually a more recent poll, there's 32 points difference. So the difference between the parties has grown tremendously on that issue. Another example, stricter environmental laws and regulations cost too many jobs and hurt the economy. Well, there was 10 points difference between Democrats and Republicans in what percentage of them agreed with that statement. And now there's 38 points difference. Uh, So some of these have grown. Interestingly, one that hasn't changed much at all is homosexuality should be discouraged by society. People think that's like really tearing the parties apart. Actually, that hasn't changed much and it's gone down for both parties. So there's some really interesting data in Pew. Now, all that's about the difference in their views, the disagreements about the policies. What about other things like the antagonism? Well, their data also shows that most Republicans think that Democrats are closed-minded and ill-informed and not worth talking to. And the Democrats feel the same way about Republicans. You look, for example, at the difference between what they think about Trump. Is he doing a good job in the most recent one? 88% of Republicans say yes. 8% of Democrats say yes. There has never been anywhere near that degree of separation uh, between the parties. And they hate each other. They dislike each other. Most Republicans, I think I'm I'm looking at the data here, 86 percent feel very cold towards Barack Obama, whereas among Democrats, 83 percent feel very warm towards Barack Obama. One of the things I love to cite is they don't just feel cold and warm towards Barack. They feel cold and warm towards Michelle Obama. There's big differences between how Republicans and Democrats think about Michelle Obama. But it doesn't stop there. They actually did a survey. How do you feel about Obama's dog? And the Democrats and Republicans feel cold and warm about the dog. Wow. 
So the hatred goes because if you hate Obama, you hate his dog, you know, you hate his wife and you just hate everything about it. You just you want the whole family to leave. They didn't survey the kids, thank God. I don't know what people would have said about the kids. That's probably in the interest of everyone's well-being that they didn't ask about the children. Yeah. But that's the kind of antagonism that I think is tearing our country apart. That's what we need to get beyond is this hatred of the other side. You know, because he just recently died, let's mention John McCain, that, the, that incident with the woman who was saying these horrible things about Obama. And McCain, much to his credit, said, no, 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 no. He's actually a good man trying to do what he thinks is best. There are not enough politicians like McCain left. Yeah. Well, one thing that people tend to point to when it comes to polarization is, and I think they're right, is that the groups often cannot agree on basic facts. This is something that any of us who have had a conversation with a family member or someone on the other side of the aisle, we go to, well, oh, okay, you think this is a trustworthy source and I I think that they are just clickbait. But I will admit that on the left, we tend to think, well, yeah, but it's the right that has all the clickbait and all the fake news. What does the data actually show or what do you, what do you see in sort of the way that people make arguments? So... I think people think, uh, sometimes on both sides, they agree. Well, people on the left think that people on the right don't know anything about science, right? And science is really the truth, and it's got the evidence behind it, and so they're just being ignorant, and you know, it's their fault for not listening to science. Whereas religious people, at least on the right, often say, well, they haven't accepted God's truth. That's the stereotype. The actual facts are... Many people on the left are religious. They might not hold exactly the same religious views as the people on the right, but they believe a lot of the Christian religion or, the, or Islam or other religions, Jewish. And science also, there's ignorance on both sides. So my reading of the science is that people on the right are often just ignorant or misinformed about global warming and about gun reforms. And yet people on the left, are often very misinformed about genetically modified organisms, about fracking, and about vaccines. And so neither side has a monopoly on the truth and the facts or on science, our best method of, it, of getting at the facts. And yet they both accuse each other of being ill-informed and being the dupes of the media or whatever. And so... That's why I think antagonism is the crucial thing. If they weren't so antagonistic, they wouldn't be accusing the other side of that. They'd actually, you know, might be willing to listen to them and learn from each other. This seems like not an easy problem to fix, uh, this, this disagreement about facts or news sources or information sources. I don't know if you have any ideas about ways forward, but we could distinguish between a personal way forward for, for me as, you know, a conscientious citizen and maybe a a systemic way forward. I wonder what you think about either of those solutions. So a systemic way forward, people often say things like, let's end gerrymandering. That's way too simple. Look, there's polarization in the Senate and there's no gerrymandering in the Senate. Right. So I think some of those systematic things are overly simplistic. Of course, you can become very idealistic. I've got a solution. All you need is love. That's what the Beatles said, and I'm a child of the 60s, so I think all you need is love. But 
that doesn't tell you how you get that love. And so I think what, what you said in your opening question, I think is right. You know, we want to know what's the personal solution. What, what can we do in our lives? So I have a lab here. I'm very lucky to be at Duke University and they've provided support and I've got support from other places as well. Templeton Foundation, University of Connecticut. And what we're studying is different kinds of interventions. We're trying to adapt some methods that are used in schools, such as that used by the Right Questions Institute. We are using a model of perspective taking where you have people explain their opponents' views and try to explain it the way those opponents would explain it themselves. And we're using something called jigsaw classrooms that were developed during the 60s to facilitate the integration of public schools to get the students working together and respecting each other. Now, each of those techniques was developed for different purposes. We're trying to modify them and adapt them so as to fight polarization. But they're all techniques that you can use in your everyday life. And we're going to try to put them on websites in order to spread the word to a larger audience. So speaking of a shift toward a more respectful mode of dialogue, let's move away from polarization for a minute and look specifically at civility and incivility. First, can you define it? What's civility and what do you mean when you use that word? So civility is one of those words where I think it's easier to find the opposite. It's easier to find incivility. Incivility is when you talk in a certain way or treat somebody in a certain way that is going to make them feel disrespected as a person, or maybe it's going to show that you don't have any respect for the truth. You're just trying to get your word out there and get likes on the internet or something like that without any concern for whether what you're saying is accurate. So that's incivility. When you start expressing something in a very emotional way, in a very powerful way that shows disrespect for the other person and disrespect for the truth. Now, civility is when you don't do that. I mean, civility, basically, you're being civil when you don't do those things. Why is that important? I mean, it seems like a dumb question, but what does civility lead to practically? Well, because when you act in, in, in an incivil or uncivil way towards me, then I don't want to talk to you anymore. I don't listen to you. I get in a fighting attitude and you say something and I just attack it or dismiss it and ignore it. And you do the same for me. And that means we're never going to exchange ideas and reasons. We're never going to learn from each other. We're going to end up disrespecting each other. And I'm going to, if you hold a different political view, I think you are a threat to our country. Most Republicans think the Democratic Party is a threat to the country. Most Democrats think the Republican Party is a threat to the country. And if you don't understand any reason why people would hold these views that you think are threatening – then you just think there are monsters that need to be fought, not cooperated, no compromise, and so on. This whole instability then just feeds the other aspects of polarization. Those are different aspects of polarization, but they are causally connected. And I think incivility is one of the basic causes that leads people to not understand each other and eventually to hate each other. I want to throw out two devil's advocate arguments that purport to show why we don't need civility. The first one, and I've heard this a lot, is there's no time to be civil. I'm too busy defending the rights or, you know, fill in the blank. What's the response to that? I think that's absolutely right. One of the biggest problems in my life is time. And I assume that's true for most people. 
you just don't have time to learn all the different things. You know, the Internet's great, but who has time to read the Internet? Nobody, because it's millions and millions of pages. And so there's just so much information. People don't have time. And so they cut to these quick and easy responses to other positions. So, yeah, there's no time to be civil. You don't have to be civil is to turn to the other person and say, oh, that's interesting. So you disagree with me. I'd like to hear why you disagree with me. I'd like to hear more about your position. Well, you know, an hour later, the other person's finished talking and you haven't fixed dinner. So that's a real problem. The solution is, you know, to take the time to become more patient, right? Because like in many other areas of life, haste makes waste. If you are in a hurry and you're trying to simplify a very complex problem down to three words so that you can get out of there, then, yeah, you're not going to solve anything. You're going to create problems. I wish people had more time, but I don't know any solution other than to tell people to be patient. I guess the other thing I would add is don't waste time on people who aren't listening to you. Talk to people in the middle who really are open to your perspective and are listening. Don't waste time arguing with trolls on the Internet. That's pointless. And don't try to cover every topic. Admit that you do not understand environmental policy. But focus on immigration, if that's what interests you most. You have to pick and choose who you're going to talk to and which topics you're going to talk about. Don't try to cover everything. That's one way to gain a little bit of time in your life. I think that that's a really good answer and actually kind of cuts to some deeper questions, too, about pace of life. But to move on to another devil's advocate response, we've never been civil in the past, Walter, this is an illusion created by mid-century economic booms and, you know, whatever the, the argument might be. If you really look closely, people have been at each other's throats all the time and it's been okay in the past. What's your response to that? I agree that people have been uncivil and polarized in the past. And there were fist fights in Congress during the 19th century. Yeah. I was a child of the 60s. I remember protests that were not civil at all and involved the throwing of Molotov cocktails. Not by me, not by me, but <laughs> by others. And so, yeah, there have been fights like this a lot. But it seems to me it's reached more broadly and more, it's kind of invaded people's personal spaces more, partly as a result of the internet. You know, it used to be the people in Congress are fighting that, the protesters are doing that, but I'm going to leave my life the way I leave my life, and I'm going to talk to my neighbors and be friends with my neighbors. Well, that just doesn't happen as much anymore, partly because your neighbor has you know, a Facebook page. And when you go on that Facebook page, you hear them saying things that they would never say at the block party. So you find out that these people disagree with you, and they disagree vehemently, and they're saying horrible things on the Internet. Well, they would never say that to your face. But when you hear it, you don't invite them to the block party next time. Or you don't even have a black party because your block becomes so disintegrated. I think the Internet has spread it and made it more a part of our everyday life than before. Which, but again, you're absolutely right. It's not unique. Even in the 60s, you know, people were fighting on the same block. That, that strikes me that maybe we should think about this access to information the way we've thought about other technologies in the past. And we might just be in kind of a, an unregulated moment. Like I think about, you think about cars, all of a sudden everyone's got a car, but people are dying 
because they're drinking and driving and they're not wearing seatbelts and they're giving licenses to people who are too young or haven't shown that they can do it. So then, all right, we have stricter licensing and we have seatbelt laws. Or you think about, oh, there's now an iPad in my house and I have young children and that's fine, but we're going to limit their screen time because we know that if they're on the iPad for 10 hours, it's going to hurt their development. We've had enough studies about this for young kids that we sort of know some of the risks. And maybe it's just that, hey, it is great to have access to this information. In particular, in my world, I I come from a semi-fundamentalist evangelical background, and there was a lot of control of information in that group. And that led to a lot of people really becoming disenfranchised with their faith later in life because they weren't shown other options. And it's good that we have that access to information. It's good that I can watch a stream of someone, people praying in a mosque and go, I'm not afraid of those people. They're obviously doing something loving or whatever, but maybe we're just early on and we haven't figured out what those common sense limits are to control for the unintended consequences of those platforms. Do you, what do you think about that? So I agree that we're early on, and I certainly agree that we haven't controlled for the unintended consequences of the platform. But now, how are we going to do that without limiting free speech? Right. And so here's a suggestion. Let's get some smart computer programmer to build an app that you can put on your computer that tells you, that dings you when you have spent you know, more than a certain amount of time on a website that is, you know, known to be unreliable or that is known to be extreme and maybe even suggest another website that would balance that view. So it would not be hard to use the tools of technology to overcome some of the dangers of technology. It seems to me we could be doing that now. And there are some beginning, there's some people beginning to attempt to construct things like this, but are people going to adopt them or not? Well, again, Now, let's say, I remember my my son was working at Facebook, and one day they had a, you could get a star that you put on your Facebook page for organ donations. And the next day, there were 10 times as many organ donors signed up as ever before. Yeah, there's a little power to technology. So let's say on your Facebook page, you can mark yourself as somebody who uses this app. And then there develops a culture. At first, people aren't going to want it. But you can develop a culture and pat each other on the back and say, isn't it great that you're doing this? And we need to change our culture. And that is not going to happen overnight. But I think you know, some kinds of technology can at least get us started. Let's talk uh, beyond the states for a second. We, we know that polarization has increased here. Are we spreading that? Has polarization become a new U.S. export along with Hollywood and, you know, steel or whatever? Yeah, I think it has. Uh, And the Internet also, you know, can explain that. And nowadays, you know, people in other countries can easily get access to, you know, the debates that we're having. and And they know that the U.S. is very influential in many ways. So they're interested in finding out about it. But then they see us engaging in this type of discourse, and they tend to pick it up themselves because it looks like successful people are saying these things. I mean, it's amazing how successful some people get from saying things that are just obviously simplistic. Yeah. And that's not a mischaracterization. They really do get successful by doing that. And we really do reward them for it. Yeah. And that's what we've got to stop is stop rewarding these people because it's not helping us or the country or the rest of the world by proxy. 
Yeah. And sure, does it affect the other? Look at the debates about Brexit. People were yelling at each other and calling each other racist and, and so on and ignorant. And look at the debates about immigration in Europe and how many immigrants should be allowed, which also turns into horrible rhetoric and incivility towards each other in a variety of ways. So I think it is affecting the rest of the world. Uh, if you look at Iceland, for example, their views in the, between the parties in Iceland reportedly are not even that far apart. I talk about this in my book. They're, they're not even that far apart. But the people in Iceland think they're far apart. Mm. And so they just like each other when they're actually not even disagreeing that much. It's amazing how the hatred can be built on the rhetoric, despite the reality that they're not that far apart. Well, you mentioned the book. The book is called Think Again, and I've been reading through it, and it's great. And it's really about arguments, right? The book is about arguments and misunderstanding and then properly understanding what arguments are, how to spot a good one, a bad one, how to end them. I wanted to start, though, by just asking you, what do you love about arguments so much so that you would write a book about them? You know, I, I think there are a number of different things about arguments that I love. I love their structure. I, I used to do math and just the beauty of a proof, you know, and seeing how it all fits together and how these different views form a unity that then yields a conclusion that surprises you. Just the whole process of constructing an argument and the beauty of the thing that's constructed, you know, not everybody likes that, but I do. Then I also enjoy the enterprise of picking apart somebody else's argument and seeing how the different parts fit together and understand what do they mean by that word and trying to get as precise as possible and trying to give them a better argument than they went with. I mean, to me, at least, I get a student in my class or a friend on the street who says something that gives an argument. And I, I want to say, so what you're really saying is this. And they go, oh, my, you're, you're right. That's what I was saying. You put it so much better than I did. Thank you very much. That gives me great joy. But in a more practical social sense, I love arguments because I think they can help us undermine polarization and learn how to work together with each other. So if we're talking about minimum wage and you say, you know, we have to increase the minimum wage and I say we shouldn't increase the minimum wage. Well, what do we do then? I mean, we're just in an impasse. But if you say we have to increase the minimum wage because people who work full time should not have to live in poverty. And I say, well, we shouldn't increase the minimum wage because that's going to reduce the number of jobs available or the number of hours that people work. And then they're going to end up worse off. Now we've given reasons and we can now compromise and look for some way to make it so that people who are working full time are not living in poverty. And yet it's instituted in such a way that people are not going to lose jobs or hours in their jobs. So we know what to do and where to go. So we're, now we're able to compromise without an argument that expresses a reason for our view. We would never have been able to do that. And crucially, now you're in a place to say, oh, let's get some facts. Let, what facts do we need to adjudicate this? Exactly. So in the old days under Obama, you know, we were going to try to increase the minimum wage from seven, the federal minimum wage from 725 to 1010. 
They did a congressional budget office report that said when you raise it to 1010, uh, that could cost uh, anywhere from you know zero to a million jobs, but there's probably around 500,000. That's a lot of jobs to raise it to 1010. Nobody bothered to look at the report and find out that if you raise it to nine instead of to 1010, there would be no loss of jobs. And so why aren't people willing to compromise and go, well, let's get it from 725 up to nine and worry later about whether we should go higher? Yeah, because of the political cost with their base. I mean, that's really why, right? You know, I want my team to win. And I don't care whether we win by one point, (laughs) right? There's no compromise in a sports event. And so if you think of arguments as sporting events that you're going to beat the other person, there's no room for compromise. And that's what they're, that's the way they were thinking about the minimum wage. Do arguments, do they respect people in a, in a way that other types of disagreement do not respect them? Absolutely. You know, when my cat is scratching at my couch, I don't, argue with it and give it reasons not to scratch my couch. When my dog starts to go to the left, when I want to go home to the right, I don't give it reasons. I just tug on the leash. So we treat animals without arguments. But if I were to do that to my wife, we would not be married very long. Uh, We've been married (laughs) for 41 years now. So, And part of it is we give each other reasons when we disagree. That's treating each other with respect. It's saying, you're the kind of person or the kind of creature that I can learn from, that can give me reasons, and that I want to hear those reasons. When we interchange or exchange arguments, then that's what we're saying about each other. You're not a dog. You're not a cat. You're a person who can give reasons that I want to learn from and can learn from. That's a very respectful message. So one way to respect someone is to give them your reasons, but something that you write about is also to spend a lot more time asking people about their reasons. Why is it a good strategy to ask a lot of questions when you disagree with somebody? Well, when you make an assertion, people often just counter-react. They deny what you say, they dismiss you as an idiot, and so on. But if you ask them the right kind of question in the right circumstances in the right way, then they try to answer it. And when they try to answer it, they often will find out that they don't really know as much as they thought they did, or they're not even sure exactly what they think. And that makes them more open to a discussion. Now, you've got to do the same yourself and say, okay, why do I believe what I believe? You know, how exactly is my proposal going to work? Where should I be instituting it and how quickly? You got to ask yourself the same questions, but if you're both asking each other questions, then those questions are going to teach each of you something. And when you answer them, right, now the person's committed to something. You didn't put those words in their mouth. They're not words that express your beliefs. They are now adopting a position and they want to get that right. Then it's very constructive to make them think about it and formulate their answer. I have experienced this so many times in talking with Trump supporters or even in deciding not to talk with them because of running the argument in my head. And I I find myself thinking something like, well, I don't even know where to begin with him. But then I actually uh, ask myself that, well, why don't I know where to begin? And sometimes 
I find that a lot of what I would want to say is just kind of based on like a vibe I get or, you know, being flooded with a certain kind of reporting or information. And then I go, well, that, that wouldn't be that convincing. I'd have to start much further back about why I trust this information. And that's even clarifying for me to go, ah, I, I don't have as sort of locked down of a case as I think I have, as I feel like I have, I should say. And then if I start asking them questions, or even if they ask me questions, I'm going to have to audit all of that, right? And that's going to be quite uncomfortable sometimes, especially if part of my identity, for instance, has become resisting Trump or owning the libs or something. Well, then that's going to be hard, but it's sort of obviously the right thing to do, right? Yeah. I like the way you put it, that you you feel like you ought to have this information and some re- and this reason. That's what's uh, called in psychology accountability. So Tetlock and Lerner have done a lot of great work on that. And what they found, for example, is that if you give people a scenario where it describes a crime and you ask them, should this person be guilty and how much should they be punished? And they know what the laws are and what the typical punishments are. And they're told, you know, you ought to decide on the basis of the law and the facts. If you simply say, you're going to have to tell us whether the person's guilty. Their guilty judgments depend mainly on whether they like the defendant or not, Mm. not so much on the facts of the case. But if you tell them in advance, you're going to have to tell us, should the person be found guilty? And you're going to have to give us a reason. Then their decisions in the case depend on the facts of the case. Now that's oversimplifying their research greatly, but that's the basic idea is that when you feel like you have to give a reason, you're going to be much more responsible in the positions that you adopt. Then we're not going to have these extreme positions. We're not going to have people hating each other. We're going to have people realizing that on both sides, if we have expectations that you have to give reasons and you cannot just go and assert your position and then be quiet, then we're going to have people adopting more reasonable positions. So, Ellen, you know, we're talking about these these patron-only episodes. If you sign up on Patreon, then you have access to two bonus episodes a month that no one else gets to hear. And uh, this week, do you, have you met Aaron Lunsford? Do you know him? Uh, I don't think... He's a why Tennessee would I guy. I don't know. You guys have some mutual friends. But he's he is a controversial figure in the world of the bad Christian Twitter oh. sphere and all of that. He's a very funny guy. He's a very a guy who very much speaks his mind. Uh, he's very fun to be around. He has also pissed a lot you of people really off. Like, you really like this I guy. Do. I really like him. Uh, I would not say some of the things that he has said publicly, and he knows that I feel that way, but we are friends. And this week we had a conversation about comedy because he's also a stand-up comedian, and he's a drummer, mm-hmm. and he's a barbecue chef, and he's a stand-up comedian. What else do you like about him? Uh, <laughs> uh, he's got a lisp. It's really endearing. Oh, that is adorable. I was just telling my husband that uh, I hope that my daughter never loses her lisp. Well, I don't know if Aaron, like, it's funny that like, I just thought, man, I don't know if I should talk about his lisp. Then I was like, it's Aaron. Like he's, there's nothing I could say that he would hear it and be offended by it. He's that Except kind of maybe, a guy. What if it's, what if the one thing is his lisp? That's his Achilles heel. Well, it would be weird if he did that and then like chose to be a part of podcasts and stuff. That would be a weird choice. So I doubt it. Anyway, what's important about him is not his lisp. It is 
I don't know, his ability to delight and offend. And anyway, we talked about kind of political correctness and comedy and his experience navigating like jokes about race. Is he pretty race. conservative or no? He's kind of libertarian. Yeah. And I think he's maybe, you know, we, we chat as friends and he's maybe drifting a bit away from that, but that's definitely where he comes from. He lives in Nashville. And uh, well, here, here's some clips from our conversation. If you, if you find this interesting and you're not a patron, you can go to patreon.com slash depolarize and you can sign up for as little as $3 a month and you get access to all of these bonus episodes two a month that don't air anywhere else. Here's me with Aaron. The set that you heard me do in January, I'm still working on that. Yeah. So I've taken that set that was about 10 minutes long. Now all those jokes are about five minutes. <laughs> and this is what and this is what comedians do, right? It's, yeah. it's kind of like poetry in that sense. You, you're removing unnecessary words. Yeah, yeah. I, I view it more like a short story, but yeah, poetry. Similar. There's there's a worry that I find myself more engaged with, which is that comedy might be the last great depolarizing hope that we have because comics yes. are able and, and have always been able, I think, as far as I can tell, to say hard truths in a palatable yes. way. Uh, there's a weird thing going on now, like like Stephen Colbert. Like every time I see anything he's doing, I'm just like, why isn't this funny? Why isn't he trying to be funny? And I'm I'm thinking, like, is everybody not exhausted from Trump jokes? Because Trump's not funny anymore. Uh, the people there laughed. That's it. That's all that matters. I already got paid. I'm gone. So why are, why are we rehashing the show that went well that people paid to see? So. So I was going to save the Jonathan Haidt stuff for the end of the interview, but but let's get into it now because you're reminding me of something that I've read about all this in, in Paul Bloom's book, Against Empathy. And f- first, I'll just briefly recharacterize Haidt's thesis, which is that most of the time when people give their reasons for believing something, they are not giving the real reasons that they believe it in a sense, if you want to put real reasons in quotes. The real reason that they believe something is that they sort of lean toward it already for some other reason. It could be psychology, it could be their DNA, it could be their family, it could be what their friends believe, it could be how they prefer to see themselves rather than how they really are. And then when asked for a reason, their sort of inner lawyer constructs one. And I mean, I think that I, I found this stuff to be very helpful. I see it certainly in myself. I'm certainly guilty of doing that plenty of the time. And I give a lot of love to, to Jonathan Haidt on this show, as any listener knows, but something that I read, I think a lot of his work is extremely insightful. Yeah. Uh, but something I read interesting recently was Paul Bloom. And he said, look, that's, that's all well and good, but most of the stuff that they're testing in these situations and most of the stuff that like social and moral psychologists test are things on which there's not a whole lot hanging. There's not a whole lot that sort of matters about it, right? So we might test whether, you know, it might be true that if people are shown an African-American face as opposed to a white face, and then they're asked to render a judgment in like a mind game, in a game, in a psychological lab, yeah, they're, 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 we're gonna, it's going to show up. But if you ask, your, you ask someone, why are you sending your kid to this school and not that school? Well, all of a sudden you're going to hear a lot of arguments that sound like real arguments. 
And Bloom's point is that it's because there's a lot on the line in where you send your kid to school. There's not a lot on the line in, I don't know, what you think of Nancy Pelosi. Not really. What are you going to do about Nancy Pelosi except one vote out of 150 million? So that's kind of the bridge, maybe. You reminded me of that. I'd love to hear what you think about that, and then let's get into some more of that moral foundations theory and and, and that Humean kind of way of looking at minds. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. I I might add one element to it, but what they do, what psychologists do is they put people in – you know, a lab experiment, and then they ask them to give reasons and stuff, but nothing hinges on what they say in that setting, right? And they're doing it all by themselves. They're not members of a group where anybody's going to call them on it. And so you do get those effects, and those effects are real, and they do explain what happens in those contexts, but those aren't the only contexts. So there's a wonderful new book by, oh gosh, I think it's Hugo Mercier, and Dan Sperber called The Enigma of Reason. And they suggest that when people reason together in a group face-to-face and when they, their incentive is to find the truth because the issue really matters to them, as you said, then they are much more rational and do not commit nearly as often. They still sometimes, but not nearly as often the number of errors of reasoning that they do in other settings. So let me give you a a great example, though, of what you said, because I I completely am on board. C.P. Ellis and Ann Atwater in Durham during the civil rights movement were made co-chairs of a committee to uh, figure out how to integrate the uh, Durham public schools. The problem was Ann Atwater was the head of the African-American housing movement to try to get fair housing and and jobs for African-Americans in Durham. Uh, She was African-American herself. Uh, C.P. Ellis was the head of the local Ku Klux Klan. And at first, they just hated each other and yelled at each other and so on. But then they realized, we got to work together. This is going to happen one way or another. We got to figure out. Now, all of a sudden, something's on the line. And they asked each other, so what are your reasons for your position on this? And C.P. Ellis, the, the uh, member of the Ku Klux Klan, said, well, I don't want to integrate the schools because I think it's going to make the schools worse for my kids. And Ann Atwater said, well, I don't want to make the schools worse for your kids either. I just want the kids, schools to be good for my kids. And they both all of a sudden realized that they shared something in common that they needed to do something to help their kids, something really hung on it at that point. It's not just rhetoric that goes out into the internet or into the newspaper and then makes you friends with people who agree with you. It's something that's going to affect your kids. Now they work together. And these two work together, help to integrate the schools, and remained lifelong friends after that. Wow. the uh, Running the KKK did not prevent them from becoming lifelong friends? He, he left the KKK at a certain point. <laughs> I'm not sure they would have been friends if he'd stayed in the KKK. Yeah, that okay, that, that strained credulity. But I'm guilty of a name drop earlier. I said, Humean way of looking at things. I need to explain that uh, because this is not a philosophy show. I'm, we're, we're referring to David Hume, and Hume's fundamental view of the human mind was that emotions came first, reason came second. Reason was the slave of the passions, I think is the phrase. Is that correct? 
he certainly said that, but I think that phrase is often taken out of context. Sure. In fact, he thinks our emotions are often guided by our view of what the facts are. So if I believe that my wife is cheating on me, I'm going to be mad at her. When I find out that, no, she was actually planning a surprise party for me, I'm not mad at her. Sure. The facts change your emotions. I mean, this idea that, you know, you're, I'm mad at her, so I'm not going to believe she's really planning a surprise party to me. No. You know, if I find out the facts, that's going to change my emotions. These two interact, and they're not even always completely separate. Hmm. Well, and in the spirit of uh, nuancing this, you know, we're being a little harder on Jonathan Haidt here than I usually am. But he also, in his book, In the Righteous Mind, he basically says, look, of course you can willfully make yourself available to hear arguments. You do have this capacity. You can be swayed by them. I think what he's pointing out is that that's not necessarily the default, and certainly it's not the default in today's sort of online political discourse, which I think we would all agree on. But this is something that we can do. I certainly think that I'm trying to do it. How do I know that I'm not deceiving myself, that I actually am listening, I am making myself available, I am being willing to question my own beliefs and arguments? What sort of barometer do I have to figure out if that's true? Well, I mean, the first thing to say is it's not easy. I mean, self-knowledge is very difficult. Ask Socrates from long ago. Socrates, the ancient philosopher, would show people they didn't understand themselves nearly as well as they thought. So this is not news. But one thing you can do that helps, in some cases at least, is to talk to other people. If you only talk to people who agree with you, you'll never find out whether your arguments are bad. Because if I agree with you and you give a really bad argument for the view that we both agree on, I'm just going to nod and go, okay, fine. Like, why would I want to bother to correct you? But if I disagree with you, then we can talk about it. So if you want people to find flaws in your position and flaws in your argument, you want to talk to the other people. So get out of your little isolated cell on the Internet, you know, get out of your neighborhood where everybody agrees with your politics and start talking to other people. It's not that hard to do. You can go on the Internet and find places where people with different political views or views of, on the number of different issues want to engage. Sometimes they're going to be trolls and then you shut them off. But when you find somebody who disagrees with you, but who is being reasonable and listening as well as informing you and you're learning from them, treasure that person like a good friend. Do not treat them like an opponent and do not avoid them. Seek them out. You know, (laughs) I think that this is even harder than we tend to think it is. And I'll give an autobiographical example. And I, by the way, am the kind of person who started a podcast on polarization. I watched Succession on HBO, the the new drama, and I loved it. And then I was like, I want to read some essays because I know that there are TV writers who write really thoughtful stuff about good TV shows. But I was going through the Google results of articles about the show Succession, and I was avoiding critical articles about a show, right? right? If I'll do that for a f-ing show, how much more so will I do that for something that I think is a part of my being? I care about immigrants or I care about, you know, jobs or whatever it is. Like, it's just crazy how difficult it is. We just don't want it. My brain does not reward me 
for disagreeing with people. It rewards me in the moment anyway for a hit parade of agreement. So I think let's go back to the point that you made earlier, which I agree with. You avoided those negative things because you had no incentive like to get it right. You didn't, nothing hung on it for you. Right. Suppose that you had wanted to get straight, you know, the information about this, you know, whatever was getting reviewed because you wanted to know whether to recommend it to your teenage kids. Hmm. Right. Now, all of a sudden it matters. Now you're going to read both sides. So I think we have to realize that we're going to have a tendency to seek out information that supports us and avoid information on the other side when it doesn't matter that much to us. But that doesn't mean we cannot change the context and then create the incentive to properly correct for those natural tendencies. That's good. It it might just also help, though, to acknowledge what we're doing. Like when I am reading articles about who's the latest person to be granted immunity in the molar probe, there is a part of me that's reading that because I want the truth to come out. But there's also a part of me that just wants to read a really good article about succession. Sure. Yeah. And sometimes that's fun. And, you know, you can enjoy the jokes that people make at others' expense. And there's a real temptation to do that. But part of it is, like you said, nothing hinges on it. Suppose I come to the conclusion that the Mueller probe ought to end. Well, nothing I can do about that. Suppose I come to the conclusion that it ought to continue. Nothing I can do about that. There's, you know, and so I'm not, I don't have the incentive to get it right. Take, take your review example. Here's a difference for me. I'll admit it. When I'm thinking of going to a movie, I read the reviews. I want to read the good reviews. Yeah. Not bad reviews, because if I read the good reviews, I'll enjoy the movie more. But when I go to a restaurant, I want to read good and bad because I got to pick something off the menu. Hmm. And what I order is going to matter. So I read both for restaurants because I want to get the dish that people like more and avoid the dish that people said wasn't so good. Let's return to arguments. The word, the English word argument is actually kind of a bummer, right? We tend to think of disagreements as fights, like arguments are things we win or lose. We want to be correct, but that's not really what's going on in a good argument, right? You're certainly not trying to beat the other person the way you win in military. You know, you're not trying to kill your opponents, you know, or reduce them to rubble. That's certainly not what you're trying to do. I mean, people do talk that way. Kids say, my parents are having an argument tonight. What they mean is they're yelling at each other, not that they're giving each other reasons. The other bad analogy is debates. People that arguments are for debates or for lawsuits, you know, where you have two sides and they're giving arguments on both sides and one of them wins. Well, they are giving arguments, sure, but that's kind of an artificial institutional setting. That's not the way you and I talk to each other. And sometimes arguments are given just for show as if it's theater. And the point of giving an argument is just to show you how smart I am. You know, how much smarter than you are. Like I can have a quick repost that makes you look silly and that shows how intelligent and I am. Well, no, that's not really the main purpose either. I think, you know, when argument is done properly, it is done for the purpose of giving reasons for my views 
and you give reasons for your views, and that helps us understand each other, which reduces our antagonism and makes us more able to compromise. Now, I admit that not everybody gives arguments for that reason, but a lot of people do, and it can be done, and that's the most constructive way to argue. I love this part in your book where you ask the reader to consider some difficult questions. You ask a lot of them, but two that I underlined were, do I understand what members of the other side prefer about their candidates? And do I recognize any good reasons for their positions? It seems to me that it's increasingly rare that the average person could answer yes to those questions. Absolutely. It's, it's increasingly rare, and that's what bothers me, because we can do it. You can learn how to do it. My book tries to teach you ways to do it, but people don't take the time to do it. But, you know, we mentioned before about how it takes time. You've got to be patient to understand the other person and, uh, and get it all straight. You know, I, I spent in my book, I take, you know, one little op-ed from a newspaper article in the Philippines and spend 20 pages tearing it apart and looking at people don't, you know, a lot of people, you know, don't take the time, you know, to do that. And so they've got to, you know, learn that skill and learn that patience uh, that it takes to understand the other person. How do you get them to do that? Well, one way, I mean, other than buying and reading my book, uh, <laughs> is to take the other person and try to express their views. Okay, so we're trying to we're trying to set up a website. I hope we're going to get it done by October so that we can do it in this election. You can do it either for views or for candidates. But let me tell you about candidates, because that's what we're going to try to do before the election. Two people running for Senate in your home state. Which one are you going to vote for, A or B? And you say A. And then we say, OK, we want you to express the views of B. What do you think B really believes? And then we're going to have people who say they voted for B tell you how accurate you were. And there's going to be a prize for the person that gets it most accurate. So that means that you've got an incentive to actually get it right what the other person believes. And if we put this up on the Internet, our hope is that we can get people in all, you know, all the states where there are senatorial elections, I guess is two thirds of 50, whatever that is, 34. And then they will actually be paying attention to the other side's views rather than just dismissing them and ignoring them. So. One of the great joys of the modern age is the internet meme. Just last night I was driving with a friend and we were, we were still laughing about the Nickelback meme of look at this graph. I don't know if you've seen that one, but memes and code words and nicknames can also replace arguments. They can replace real reasons. And that's not as good. Uh, it's not as good as the cat meme that we can laugh at. What happens when we allow these sort of short bursts of internet rhetoric to replace actual arguments? Well, I think we cease to understand each other. You know, if every time you talk about Hillary, you call her crooked Hillary, then people don't even listen to the rest of it. And if every time you talk about Trump, you talk about how small his hands are, you know, then that's, you know, just as bad. Uh, and it happens on both sides. And slogans, build the wall, you know, or something like that, well, that tells you what they believe, but you have no idea why. You can't assess whether you ought to do it or not because you don't know what the reasons are. Uh, and sometimes people talk in these codes where, you know, it's 
it means something to one side, but not to the other side. And then they don't understand, again, they don't understand each other. Yeah. Like cuck or rhino on the right or neoliberal on the left. Yeah. Yeah. We're actually doing a little survey about what people mean by the word conservative. And it's all over the place. (laughs) Nobody knows what counts as conservative anymore. The internet creates this atmosphere where you got to fit everything in 140 characters or wow, now we get 280 characters, big deal. But it's still not enough to understand any complex issue. And if you don't understand the other person and you think that their views are dangerous to your country, you are going to be antagonistic. You're going to dislike that person. And that's the problem. That's the cost of trying to reduce everything to slogans and memes and code words and, and so on and tweets. So I think it's a real problem in our culture today. But it doesn't mean we have to put up with it. You know, there are ways around it. You just got to incentivize people to do it. So I'm currently uh, on a diet which does not allow me to consume sugar. But one way I can replace... It's so sad. It's sad. It's working, but it's sad. But one thing I can do to replace that craving for straight, calorie, full, nutritionless sweetness is to watch videos of liberal political satire, Walter. And I get that spot and it feels so good. And I honestly, I think the same areas of my brain light up from candy as do a great Seth Meyers burn or something like that. (laughs) But I can kind of tell that it's not helpful. What do you think about political satire? Well, sometimes it can be helpful. It might help you lose weight, but it also (laughs) might help move the political discussion along if the satire is based on an accurate representation of what really happens. Is it funny then if it's based on an accurate representation? That depends on what's getting represented. Sometimes it is. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I guess maybe maybe, uh, we can – the alt-right or something or the Charlottesville might might lead to some genuinely – accurate and funny satire because it is so brazen and out in the open. You know, some political satire is about kind of, I don't know, the press secretary leaning forward too much and, you know, and, and that's, you know, not about the views of the person holds. It's physical humor about, you know, the uh, characteristics of the, of the person that don't matter to their politics. Yeah. Um, but when the satire depends upon misrepresenting the person's views, so it's that they say, I do not believe that, right? But you still keep putting the words in their mouth and making it sound really silly. Then it undermines mutual understanding and the ability to cooperate with each other. So I think satire is very powerful and it can be used for good or for ill. Too often these days, I think it's being used for ill and it fuels polarization and antagonism. And that's unfortunate. Yeah, I think of the Trump sketches on SNL, you know, for the last couple of years. And there are moments in those sketches that stick out to me as very funny and helpful, like when uh, Don Lemon is interviewing Trump and and Trump admits, yeah, I fired Comey because of Russia. And Don Lemon says, wait, did I get him? Did I get him? And then he touches his ear. Oh, nothing matters anymore. You know, that's that's kind of harsh, but there's a truth to that. It's more of a social truth. But then I just think if I were the average Trump voter and I watched Alec Baldwin's portrayal of Trump, I would be like, oh yeah, the the left, the media, the liberal elites, like they're just a bunch of jerks and they don't understand him at all. 
and I would just completely turn it off and discount it. That that would be a natural and I think even maybe justified reaction on their part. Yeah, that that Trump supporters would turn it off. Yeah, yeah right. Absolutely. I mean, I I just watched Black Klansman. I don't know if you've seen that movie. I did. I saw it. Yeah. And I thought it was a great movie until the very end when he shows an upside down American flag. Right. You didn't need that. That's just going to turn people off. You know, you don't even you don't need to show the pictures of Charlottesville. That's just saying, you know, that what happened back then is is the same as all those people there. And it's like, wait a second. You don't need to say that. That's going to be obvious to everybody anyway. You just by adding that upside down American flag. Let's focus on that. By adding the upside down American flag, you basically meant that people who have been going along with you the whole time are now going to go, whoa, I take it all back. I'm not going to buy this message anymore. Why is that upside down flag there? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I, I have, I, I could, we could spend some time on Black Klansman. I also really enjoyed the film and also had some questions about how much he hammered home that social message at the end of the film. But I agree. I thought it was a great film. I don't want to just, yeah. I was just, like, I was so into the film and then I saw the flag and I go, oh no, you blew it. Like, what, what, why did you do that? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, let's talk about the middle ground. We're sort of calling people to at least a, a temporary middle ground such that we can understand the other side, even if we end up having our views unchanged. Is it becoming an increasingly dangerous for position for people to hold? You you talk about J.K. Rowling in your book. Can you uh, tell us about that anecdote? Yeah, so she said, publicly announced or, uh, or said that she believed that people who were for Brexit were not all racist and xenophobes. And Rowling herself leans left politically. Yeah, and she was opposed to Brexit. But she said, we shouldn't think that all the people on the other side are racist xenophobes. Now, some of them are, and it would be a mistake to, to deny that some of the leaders of the Brexit movement are, but we should not assume that everyone is. So what she's trying to do is to say, don't assume that everyone opposed to you is the same. Some of them are, some of them are not. Don't view them as a group. Don't stereotype them simply because they're for Brexit. And then what happened is a bunch of people who were opposed to Brexit said, you know, basically, you're just helping the opposition. You are helping the racists and the xenophobes by making it sound like it's okay to be in favor of Brexit. And that's just going to help them and feed them. So now you're on their side. And what bothered me about that was, number one, they're saying you have to treat. They were claiming you have to treat everybody on the other side the same as if, you know, not, there's nobody reasonable over there. But also that she now is going to be reluctant to state a reasonable view because she's going to be subjected to criticism and called a racist for simply saying they're not all the same. That kind of rhetoric, I think, undermines a moderate position in the middle and an intelligent position that distinguishes one opponent from another instead of treating them all as a big monolith with no differences. A question I usually ask guests on this show is something about left and right. You know, how does the left misunderstand you or this thing or how does the right? But for you, this is special. We're going to do an arguments version of this. So, Walter, I would love you to give us 
a bad argument on the left and a bad argument on the right and break down why they're bad arguments. Okay. Well, it's not that hard, really. Uh, The examples are plentiful. (laughs) One argument form or fallacy is false dichotomy, where you're, you know, you say you're either with us or against us. And the answer is no, actually, I'm kind of neutral. I'm just trying to figure something out here. You know, I'm not with you or against you. Well, that happens all the time. The people on the left say, you know, look at that school shooting. We have to have gun control. And then the person says, well, I'm not sure I'm for the kind of gun control that you're talking about. And they try to draw some distinctions in there. Oh, you don't really care about school shootings. Wait a minute. You've just got this dichotomy going. You either want to, you know, ban all weapons in the home or you don't care about school shootings. Wait a minute. Neither of those is my position. That's a false dichotomy. Does the right do that? Absolutely. You're either for the wall or you're for open borders. Wait a minute. I'm not for the wall and I'm also not for open borders. I just there might be a better way to control immigration than building some giant wall. And it's a fallacy because in both of those cases that I mentioned, there's a third option that's getting overlooked. And well, really, to- there are 100 options, actually. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Probably an infinite number of options. <laughs> right. But we don't have time to go through them all. So there's at least one more than the two that were mentioned. You know, so that's a type of fallacy that gets committed on both sides all the time. And it, that one seems often to be emotionally charged, too. The, the false dichotomy is there's there's an emotional element to that of like, we got to protect these kids or we've got to stop the flow of migrants. And and then I've been given one proposed solution and that sounds good to me. And so I I now can't sort of get past that emotion to and it's and it's hard to, to move past that emotion. It's hard to say, oh, OK, I'm, I guess I'm willing to check all these feelings at the door for a minute. Yeah, it's, it's very hard. And also, none of the solutions is perfect. And so it's easy to say, oh, you got a third option. Tell me what it is. Well, I'll tell you what's wrong with that one, because there's always going to be something wrong with it because none of them are perfect. And so the person really does believe if you're against my proposal, then you're going to not do anything because these other things are no good. And so they just assume that you really don't care about the kids. It's like, wait a minute. I do care about the kids. I just think there's a better way to do it. You know, and now we should be talking about what's the best way to do it. Yeah. Okay. So we got false dichotomy. Give us another type of bad argument that we see on both sides. Well, another one that's just all over the place. I mean, you mentioned David Hume. He has a long discussion of this in the Treatise of Human Nature, but it's hasty generalization. You know, uh, I think on the on the right, people will say, well, look, here's an example of an immigrant who came over and was extremely violent and hurt people. So all immigrants are dangerous. But wait a minute, you just gave me one example, which we know is one out of a million in the immigrant community. <laughs> and so wait a minute, you, you can't generalize to the whole community from this one example. But the, the left does the same thing. And other, I mean, I, I know people go, look, these business leaders, these people on Wall Street, you know, look what they did. And therefore, all business people and all, you know, Wall Street investments bankers are 
you know, are just selfish and don't care about the country. They just, wait a minute. I know some of these people. Some of them are actually good people who are trying to make money, sure, but they don't want to hurt anybody. Isn't Bill Gates the richest or second richest person in the world now? And and look at the amount of good that the, their foundation is doing. Right after some pressure, but that's well, sure, but great. So so apply so apply some social pressure and then give them credit for doing it. Ted Turner did it with no pressure whatsoever, just out of the blue. But anyway, there are a lot of rich people who really do care about the world, and, and, and Bill Gates is a wonderful example. So these arguments are bad because they're assuming that everybody in that group is the same. So you pick one out, they've got to all be the same. Now, notice sometimes that's a pretty good argument. You go, you've got a tree with a whole bunch of apples on it. I wonder if those apples float. You pull down one apple, see if it floats. And if it floats, you can go, probably the other apples do too. <laughs> Yeah. Right. And so sometimes you can generalize when you assume that they're all the same in that respect. You don't have to check every apple on the tree and see if any of them sink. But you can't do that with people. You can't do that with immigrants and you can't do that with bankers. And so we have to get beyond this tendency to just take the people on the other side. They're Republicans. That's all I need to know about. Or they're Democrats. That's all I need to know about them and assume that they're all the same and you know exactly where they stand on every issue because of they happen to be a member of that party. Well, and there's actually a really simple argument for why that's the case. I mean, all apples will float in water or, you know, whatever these apples picked on this same day from this same orchard will, but that's because the the similarity and dissimilarity of apples that all come from the same orchard picked on the same day is incredibly high. Every aspect of them is very similar. You you take two human beings, self-conscious hominids, you know, with different life stories and trajectories, and it's just obvious that they just there's just far more characteristics that will differ. And so it's just kind of logically silly to assume that you could do with humans what you could do with apples. Exactly. And that's where I'll go back to my the, what we discussed earlier. We need to ask a question. If somebody says well, this apple floated, so all the apples on this tree will float. Then I go, well, why do you think that? And you're going to have an answer. You're going to go, because they're biologically similar and, the, you know, and so on. But if I go, well, this Republican, you know, is selfish, therefore all Republicans are selfish. I'm going to go, well, why do you think that? Why do you think they're all going to be the same in that respect? And now the pressure's on you to say, why? And I doubt that anyone who generalizes in that way is going to be able to give a decent answer. But if they do, I'll listen and then we can talk about it. Yeah. You know, we, I want to do one little sidebar here about the GOP and Trump because this keeps coming up and with the midterms approaching it, it, it especially will ramp up. And you know, I've spoken a little bit with like family members and in-laws and stuff. And I also, I saw a tweet from Tom Nichols, who's a never Trump Republican who just said uh, a local GOP candidate came to his door and, and he had to explain to him, like, no, 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 until there are balance has been returned to the legislative and executive branches of pa- like in terms of power, until I see that the GOP will not bow to Trump and anything he wants to do and and destroy any particular norm he'd like to destroy that week. I'm not going to vote for any Republicans. Now, once that balance of power has been restored, he's a Republican. So he will go back, I would imagine, to voting for Republicans. I have the same sort of, I'm a moderate, but I vote probably 80% Democrat, but I will not vote for any Republicans until there is a 
Democratic majority House, at least, that can do what the what I think the legislative branch ought to do in terms of keeping Trump from just doing whatever Trump wants to do, damaging what appears to me to be the judicial process and et cetera, et cetera. Now, for that reason, what would be good for me to do, correct me if I'm wrong, is to identify that, explain that clearly to people, and also explain to them that this is not a permanent state of affairs for me. I'm not saying that I am always lifelong Democrat, you know, true blue, but for this time, until this thing has changed, this is the thing that I think I should do with my vote. What do you think about that? And what do you think about that, this particular moment of the GOP Congress and Trump? So I think what you said makes sense. If you know that this particular Republican candidate is going to support whatever Trump says or almost anything that Trump says, and you think that those policies that Trump is going to support are dangerous to our country, then voting for that candidate is going to make it more likely that those harms occur to our country. And so that's a reason not to vote for that person. And if the fact that they're a member of the Republican Party means that they're more likely to go for Trump, then, yeah, it's got those implications. But I don't want to assume that every Republican is all of a sudden going to support everything Trump says. So I want to look at the candidate and say, look, you're a Republican. Tell me, what does that mean about what you're going to do when Trump comes up with a policy that you disagree with? And I think there are a lot of Republicans. I mean, Kasich is a good example in Ohio. He doesn't just like go along with whatever Trump says. There are a lot of Republicans that don't just go along with whatever Trump says. So I don't want to say I'm never going to vote for another Republican, right, until Trump's out of power. That's good. I'm, I'm never going to vote for another Republican who I have good reason to believe will do whatever Trump wants him to do. Yeah, I guess uh, I guess really if I were to be more clear on this, I would say I would not vote for a Republican congressperson or senator. That would be – and that's good. You've just helped me actually winnow that down a little bit. That's my concern is the two houses of Congress not so concerned about a state governor or something like that. But suppose you – not every – member of Congress is going to immediately toe the line with whatever Trump says either. A lot of them seem to be doing so. I admit that. I'm not denying that. But I would love to see a Republican in there who's in their caucus and raises these questions. That would be more valuable than almost anything to get people thinking about it and talking about it. I'd love to see that person in there. Yeah, that's good. I guess there's there's just a question of what the probability is that you think you could identify that kind of behavior beforehand. But that's point, point taken. One thing that I tend to think about reason and argumentation, I think of it as having the following benefit. Since I did not choose where and when I would be born, it could have been the case that I was born into a cult or to a radical and violent religious sect or born into like, I don't know, some weird family something of that nature. And if I had been, how would I know that I was? How would I know that I was on some dangerous trajectory? How, how would I know that I should get out? And it seems like reason and argumentation and understanding logical fallacies and avoiding them, all of that is like about as good of a tool as I could get to get out of that situation. Uh, agree, disagree? Would you nuance that in some way? So I agree that it's about as good a tool as possible because what arguments are 
claim to be doing is presenting reasons that are going to be apparent to both sides. Now, that doesn't mean we always, you know, agree. I might have, you know, a reason to marry my wife and you might not have a reason to marry my wife. And, you know, but still, you have to recognize the validity of my reason to marry my wife. And I have to recognize the reason of your reason not to marry my wife. And so we're going to recognize each other's reasons in that way. And so even though the reasons themselves depend to a certain extent on our particular position, we ought to be recognizing each other's. But we got to know whether they're good reasons, too. And so how do we tell whether it's a good reason? And that means we want to be talking to other people. I don't want to just say, well, I've got to figure out what the right view on this is. I think I'll go home, not watch television tonight, and sit and think about it. Well, that's not going to be a very good way to do it. You want to be talking to people on the other side who disagree. And so if you think of reasoning in a social context where the incentives are to get it right, then yes, reason is the tool that gets you beyond the idiosyncrasies of your position. But if you try to reason all by yourself in an abstract setting where nothing hinges on it, you're probably not going to be all that great at it. Sometimes, Walter, an argument has gone on long enough, and this happens especially online, but it it also happens in person, maybe at a family gathering or at a birthday party, and it's clear that my time, their time, would be better put to other uses. How do we end arguments graciously such that we don't just galvanize the other side while we're ending it? Well, I mean, really, how you do that is going to depend a lot on the particular circumstances and who you're talking to and, you know, how the argument has gone before. But one thing that often works is you say, you know, that was a really good point. I'm going to have to think about that. Uh, This is going to take me a little while to mull it over. There's a tendency to think that an argument ought to convince the person. The person says, oh, you're right. I didn't think of that. Light bulb. Yeah. I completely changed my position. Now I believe in God. Now I don't believe in God. Now I'm opposed to abortion. Now I'm defense abortion. You know, that's not the way it works. Arguments often take a lot of mulling over, a lot of reconsideration. And so it's perfectly legitimate to say your point was so interesting and potentially powerful for me that I want to mull it over and think about it. I want to talk about this some more later. But I've had enough for now because I want to think about it. That's very respectful to the other person. And you can even say, and I hope you'll think about what I said, too. And let's do it again sometime. Now, that's that's a way to end an argument with no animosity on either side. I love that. Last question for you, Walter. What can we be doing as individuals to become clearer thinkers and better arguers? Well, The obvious answer is buy my book and read it carefully five times and give it to all your friends for Christmas uh, because you're going to talk to them and learn from them, especially if they hold different positions. So learning about argumentation, but how do you learn about it? You don't really just buy my book. I mean, you should buy my book, but not just buy my book. You should practice. I say over and over again to my students and to people in my book and to people in my uh, MOOC that, you know, practice is what you need to do. You cannot expect to read an op-ed and analyze the argument the first time. You got to do it 10 times, compare it to other people, get better at it, 
we have now worked ourselves into a cultural hole where we live on memes and tweets and, and sarcasm and misrepresentation of the other view. It's going to take a long time to work ourselves out of those horrible, bad habits. And so what we ought to do is start giving arguments, demanding arguments from other people, listening to other people's arguments, and encountering people who hold very different positions. That's going to help us become clearer thinkers and better arguers. But it's not going to happen overnight. Uh, we got to be ready for a long haul. You mentioned your MOOC. Is that like a, some sort of online course that you teach that people can take? Yes, it's actually the same title as my book, Think Again. It's on the Coursera website. I teach it with Ron Netta from the uh, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Yes, a Duke professor does co-teach with a professor from Chapel Hill. An example of depolarization at work. Depolarization at work, yeah. And we've been going for about five years. We've had a million registered students. So, yeah, that's a good place to go. The book supplements that with more detail about polarization, which is not talked about in the course at all. So the hope is that the two of them will work together, you know, maybe begin to start to make a little tiny little dent in this problem. Well, great. We will have a link to that course, to a recent op-ed of yours, and to the book in the show notes on this episode. Dr. Sinnott Armstrong, Walter, thank you so much. I loved this conversation. And I know it will be helpful for a lot of people. I had a great time too. Thanks so much for having me. He's great. I really liked him a lot. You liked him? Yeah. What'd you like? He just seems like a he just seems like a great guy. <laughs> <laughs> but also he had a lot of great things to say. And yeah. that work that he's doing is insane. I mean, it's so simple and it, it's I really hope it works. I hope he gets a huge response. You mean the uh the website where they yeah, have to like the characterize the yeah. other person's yeah. Yeah, I hope yeah, BuzzFeed gets a hold of that and makes it, you know, if it goes viral, that would be so rad. Oh, hey, yeah, BuzzFeed, if you're listening. Uh, that's great. Well, so what kind of stuff stood out to you the most? What was the most interesting to you? Probably just the whole concept of how to argue well. Not that that's a strange concept, but I think if you truly want to argue well and hear and learn from the other side, quote unquote, I don't like that term, other side, yeah, because it's not so black and white, but... You have to be willing to maybe change your beliefs and your opinions on things. And its uh, I don't think that people really realize that that's what listening really can do. I think maybe yeah. a lot of people don't want to listen because they hold so tightly to their beliefs. And Well, doesn't that really get down to the center of it, right? It's like if you're not willing to change your beliefs about anything, then first of all, you probably shouldn't be listening to this podcast. But also, like, what kind of life are you going to have? I mean, yeah, but when you're in it, I feel like the people that are hard. in it, they don't care. Sure. But for those of us who, on some days, we're willing to have our beliefs challenged, and other days, we're not willing to, you know, it's like, which do you want to try and lean into? Right. What's a better way to live? But I like how honest he is about how hard some of this stuff is. Like, I feel like he's not a sugarcoater kind of a guy. Not at all. No. And some people are probably like, oh, finally an episode that has nothing to do with Christianity. But if I could just tie in Christianity real quick, I mean, I think there's a sense in which like the call to be a Christian is to, to live with some discomfort, to be willing to suffer in certain ways. And it seems almost like not worthy of the, of the name suffering, the, this kind of mental yeah. 
ideological suffering, but it really is. It is really, really hard to genuinely listen to someone who believes something that you find to be abhorrent and to like be patient. I mean, maybe it's just so hard for me because I'm a really impatient person. That's like one of my biggest weaknesses, but it's just hard, man. It's, it takes so much mental energy and, you know, it's so hard not to bite back or blow up or, you know, start escalating the rhetoric. And we really, I mean, to your point, you know, to say talking about having good arguments is the kind of thing that seems kind of silly, but we don't actually work on it. Like we don't No, we don't work on it. Maybe you learned a little bit in a class at some time in school, but Or if you're not. married, I feel, <laughs> I feel like <laughs> anybody who has a, a healthy marriage has learned to argue pretty well and argue with kindness. Yeah, hopefully that's true. But then you're, you're used to doing that with, you know, your regular sexual partner, but maybe oh. not so used to doing or that pe- with just Well, that's randos. true. And people that you, like your worldviews are basically yeah. the same. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Although it would be really interesting to see, like, if there's some kind of study about couples that bridge political differences and like are how they- Are they called like politically unequally yoke? <laughs> well, I don't know. We could invent our own term, I guess. Plenty equally yoked. This is the beginning of a brainstorm. This is what I do. I just start saying things and then something genius happens. I think a cool Halloween costume would be for a, a couple to go as two left feet. Has anyone done that? Have you ever seen that? Why, why is that funny? Well, I was thinking that like two left feet, but then, well, that would be two people who had the same view. So you go as two left feet and you're a shoe, but like you're also wearing like Bernie shirts or something like that. Is that really it's, stupid? It's not funny. Oh, okay. Well. I only go as puns. This year is... Yeah. Uh, oh, I had one for you. Oh, you do? Yeah. Uh, maybe I already told you about this. It has to be an adult costume, mm-hmm. and you would dress up as a big VHS tape. Okay. Or you could be a CD, Yeah. but you would be an adult film. <laughs> Meaning I am just an adult, and then I'm That's going as a film? That's why it's funny. But you're an good. adult film. But you, could, yeah. you know you would wear like maybe like no pants. But the, yeah. but the VHS tape would cover your life. It would be so the film, be like, yeah. You know. It'd be a modesty VHS tape. Yeah. Anyway, There's something there. I'm, what I'm were just we gonna, talking about? I'm just going to do Meow Zedong like last year. Chairman Meow. What we were talking about was what we, what we would call these people from a mixed political marriage, basically. Right. But I wonder if there's things that they learn that like the rest of us could learn from that. That would be interesting to sort of do a study where you interview. Yeah, I think that would be awesome. Well, we know I'm not going to be interviewing them. If you've (laughs) always wondered why I never interview anyone, just email Dan and he'll send you the (laughs) audio of the one time I interviewed someone. (laughs) To be fair, you interviewed your dad about sexual political questions and it was maybe it was just ill-advised. Well, what else should we talk about? Well, uh, I was thinking about how people feel really unknown and misrepresented and misunderstood. I think mostly probably on the right. And that's why we, I think that's why Trump won. But what's so bizarre to me is sort of like, are we all so self-centered that we don't understand that the other side feels that way? Like if you feel that way, the other person feels that way. And I love... What Walter is doing, that the, just that question of, hey, do you have any idea what the person that you're not voting for is, yeah. you know, is, oh to, is doing? And like, can you give a reason why they would hold this view? 
Right. The and if be- you can't. The best abortion arguments I've had, and when I, not arguments, probably more like discussions, yeah. but it's been when I have posed a question to my pro-choice friends saying like, okay, what is it that you think that I think? Yes, exactly. And then when they explain it, it's like we've both done so much work for each other because I can say, oh, I'm so glad I know that because that's not true at all. Right, right. And then it just, it's been so, so helpful. So that is a tool that I think, that's why I'm so excited that he's doing this is because it really, really works. Yeah, I have a podcast idea that I probably won't do because I have too many of them, but that if anybody wants to, they should do it, called I Don't Believe in That God. And you have like a theist and an atheist talking And then the atheist describes the God that he thinks the theist believes in. And then they figure out if it's true or not. Like, might be like, that's not what I believe. That's so cool. Very similar. I mean, that sounds like a one episode thing. Yeah. But well, (laughs) still a good idea. Maybe it's an episode series like while you were evangelizing. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I thought he had a lot of good stuff to say about argumentation. I, I like the idea that arguments respect people. Well, good arguments do. Yeah, that good arguments respect Mm -hmm. people because they say, I will tell you really why. You know, I feel treated, especially in politics in terms of like political messaging, you know, you you feel treated like a data point. You feel like, okay, Mm -hmm. this is the messaging that everyone has agreed to do because it tested well. And I'm just like one amongst a sea of like potentially millions of people who are getting this message and they just know that statistically I'll act a certain way. Fine. I understand that that's how it works and that's maybe how it needs to work in such a big country. But when someone says, here's my argument for this, and that doesn't happen as much as I'd like, right? even given the kind of people that I choose to hang out with, it still doesn't happen that often. <laughs> then, then, then I go, oh, okay, you've thought about this, you have reasons, and then we can talk about whether those reasons work or not. But I do feel respected. I don't think of myself as coming up with arguments to respect other people. I don't think of it that way, but when I'm on the other side and I think, do I feel respected by that? Yeah, I do. I feel like a perfect spa retreat weekend for you would be going to a really nice place where a lot of respectful people just argue about stuff. Oh my God. And you guys could have like group sessions Civility and one-on-ones camp. and then you could have, the, yeah. you know, get well, massages. That's kind, of, that's kind of what happens when I go to the uh, American Academy of Religion conference, which I'm going in a couple of weeks, so. It's sort of like that, just a lot of beer and people just shooting around their ideas and their arguments. But not in robes, walking no, around. No, not in robes, in plain clothes. Yeah. Well, as I said earlier in talking to Walter, we've got links to his book, his course, and a recent op-ed in the show notes. Remember, if you want to support the work that we're doing, you can. Patreon.com slash depolarize. There's a link as well in the show notes. There's a Facebook discussion group for this podcast, hundreds of people trying to depolarize and ask each other for advice and sharing articles. Just search depolarize podcast on Facebook. I had to get off Facebook, which means I got out of that group. Oh, well, you used to be able to see Alan. You didn't post anyway, really. Well, (laughs) I had to clear some things up every once in a while. Yeah, sure. Just to make sure people knew that I wasn't a total idiot. I'm only on Facebook basically to respond to that. So if you want to get a hold of me, you know, within a couple of days, I'll usually see that. And you can also email me, depolarizedpodcast at gmail.com. And especially I'd love to get ideas on these patron-only episodes because for those, the topics are wide open. I could talk to anybody about anything. 
and it doesn't necessarily have to be depolarized. Oh, and this is a great time for me to put some feelers out there. If you grew up in a Mexican Catholic household, I would love to hear from you. I've got some questions for you. About the Virgin of Guadalupe. Yes. Ellen would like to outsource her research no, for. No, I just want to do some, <laughs> you know, I want to do some on the ground. Good, some work. on the ground reporting. So you can, yeah, if you email me at podcast at gmail.com, I will forward those to Ellen if they are about Mexican Catholic Virgin of Guadalupe stuff. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Thank you so much.